for the first episode of the season we have with us a brilliant young woman who has done immense work in the field of women empowerment and gender equality we are very proud to bring to you her story through a fun candid conversation and we hope that this story will inspire you too today we have with us our first guest ms pallavi mahajan before we dive into the conversation i'd like to tell you a little about pallavi and the work that she has been doing so pallavi is a gender advocate working for economic independence and social visibility of genders she is also the co-founder of an intersectional feminist ngo called the azad initiative and this has recently received the un volunteer status as the united nations 2019 gender fellow pallavi has worked closely with the marginalized gender community in india she is also the india representative of the global goodwill ambassador to carry forward women empowerment in 192 countries and she leads a team um, for un volunteers she is now ready to start her masters in gender development in september 2020 and we're really looking forward to this episode and we couldn't have had a better guest to start this season we really hope you like this episode so just let's get started <music> give like a small introduction and your life story and how you came to be a gender scholar and who you are today or any instance that also particularly influenced your profession sure so similar uh, back in 2014 so i am a lawyer and uh, back in 2015 when i was first escalated to a leadership position in the profession that is when i came face to face with the underrepresented uh, if i could just state the data and the, if the global average of women in leadership roles in the legal industry is 30% in india is not even half it is 14.1% and if you even take the case of judiciary out of the 34 sitting judges at the supreme court only 3 are women which is not even 3%. So when I came to face with such disparity is when I went to my then boat uh, at the at the firm at the firm which was also an all male body and I was advised by them to take up a unique uh, gender diversity project. The aim of the project was that we had to fetch in policies ideologies by the virtue of which representation of genders could increase in the leadership roles in the legal industry. and i think like after 6 months of complete uh, hustle where we uh, interacted with uh, with gender experts from across the globe spoke to hr professionals read the policies etc we were able to submit a project and it was quite a successful project it not only increased the leadership in my own firm by 24% it was also ratified by 10 plus law firms in the country and was quoted by the rainmakers so rainmakers is a knowledge bank for the legal industry and actually if i look at it in hindsight this gender diversity project and the gratification that i got from this project was a catalyst in my movement towards gender advocacy and in uh, 2017 i made the big move i completely moved from corporate litigation and arbitration which was my prior domain to gender advocacy and in the same year i co-founded my intersectional feminist ngo the azad initiative which works for economic independence and social inclusion of genders that's actually i think a really warm and heartfelt story and i'm so glad like you worked on a wonderful project um so how do you like through this foundation what is your prime medium of uh, helping women be more economically independent and financially literate and yeah how do you ensure social exclu- inclusion of women in society as well right so uh So Azad basically works on three grounds. It works on academic learning, it works on policy intervention, and it works on activism. A lot of our activism projects are based on financial independence of women. And one flagship project of Azad is the She Mentorship Project, by the virtue of which we create a platform uh, 
through which privileged women allies are able to pass on vocational skills to underprivileged women seekers and this thereby creates a redressal within the problematic system itself now if you if there, there was a there was a study done by the Walton Business School in 2018 it said that if women work if there is a platform of uh, structured mentoring in india by the way by the virtue of which women can be mentored the women workforce can increase by 25% and this is where she mentorship fills the gap it it asks the privileged women allies to pass on their skills to underprivileged women seekers and uh, she mentorship has been running for 3 years now we have uh, been able to touch the life of 200,000 women and we have spread out in about 9 cities in the state of uttar pradesh and uh, in january itself the first cohort of uh, she mentorship which was a group of 20 women graduated and today they have mentees of their own and uh, two very interesting stories that emerged from she mentorship was that uh, mm-hmm. one of our uh, underprivileged women a woman uh, has started her own flagship project flagship product which is called sunita's hair oil it is coconut oil sorry it is a virgin coconut oil and it has it has sold about 3000 bottles in the last 3 years and they have also gone outside the country and the other is uh, oro candles which is again made by two young girls both are 19 years of age and both are um, are college going students underprivileged of course and uh, they were able to bag a corporate order of 1 lakh candles last diwali so this has been a transformational uh, flagship project for azad and i personally for me also because it is so necessary for us even if we are the privileged women to understand our privileges and not despise it and rather take it as a platform to to render our responsibility towards the underprivileged sector i agree so when i was reading lenin sheryl sandberg like also talks about like how mentorship like can actually transform somebody's life i think it's a wonderful concept and if girl of things can anyways like collaborate or help in azad foundation like i would love to explore probably in future any collaborations possible it's it's really you know impactful project i mean it's wonderful to hear about it um okay so since we're doing this for sexual assault awareness month so i would love to have you answer few questions related to that um sure. what do you think is the main reason behind severe and heinous crimes that happens for example rape uh, or sexual harassment that is, can also be in a very mild form what do you think is also the psyche behind the person who's molesting somebody or uh, any you think any reason that is particularly prevalent behind these sort of acts Well, that's a very interesting question, Simran, and it is a question that really is important to be to be dealt upon because if we want to control the number of cases, the number, the trends in sexual offences, it's so important to understand the psyche of the offender and not just gauge the offender to understand what background and what are we doing wrong as a country to to encourage such a psyche. So, whatever my research and my work has taught me, that most of it, most of the sexual offences, rather majority of them, are not about sex. They are not about gratification. They are not about desires that an intercourse, that an intercourse takes into cognizance. It is about two things. One is power dynamics, and the second is the delusional character state of the state of Indian man being the alpha person in a in a in any kind of a relationship or partnership. So coming to power dynamics, we in our country unfortunately are trained to believe that the dynamics, power dynamics specifically, is tilted towards the male, the uh, male gender, and therefore the offender believes that he can own up a body of a woman. That he believes that a woman retaliates when he is able to pin down a woman to the ground. He gets a build up out of it. That he can have complete control over the woman, and that is where he gets an ego boost. That is the number one side of it that that originates is that I am the one who can control the other person. Mm-hmm. I am the alpha male, and the second is unique character where somehow because of our conscious uh, gender bias or unconscious gender bias rendering of the child, the boy is uh, and, and then when the boy graduates to become a man is made to believe that he has a unique character and will always be irresistible and. Um, 
he will be always somebody that a woman yearns to be a part of or yearns to be touched by. And therefore, when a boy or a man is sexually assaulting a woman, he believes that he is doing some kind of charity to a woman to render to render any kind of carnal desires that a man has, that a woman has, and is adding new kind of uh, you know new kind of experiences to a woman's body. So I believe these two are the the, the psyche that the offender plays along. Okay. Um, usually, we see that a woman's honor is said to lay within her body. So, is a so, and we identify, we you know, tie women as an individual's identity with also the honor of the family. And so, how do you think this perception in society can be dangerous? And what we can do to change this perception that you know a woman's um, honor is not just said. A, vo- a family's honor not just resides in the, like a woman's body and a vagina. Yeah, you are absolutely right. And uh, this is not a story of today. If you even if you, if you even read the history of feminism, be it be the four phases of feminism that the world had seen, or the three phases of feminism that were prevalent in India, it has always been that a woman is supposed to be maintain her chastity before marriage and then be an honorable wife and daughter in law and to maintain and to always carry forward the honor of the community even if she wants to or doesn't want to. So the only the, the basic reason as to why this kind of ideology came into existence was first the the weapon, the most used weapon by patriarchy was they were pitting women against women. It was even in the even in the first and the second phase of feminism, it was the women against women who re, who regarded that one particular aspect of feminism where uh, a woman is supposed to take care of her body, is supposed to is supposed to only lose her virginity to her husband, are actually the ideologies which were first advocated by women. Because that's that's a tool that patriarchy adopted that pit women against women. So the first first way by which we can we can change this perception of the society is to make sure that there is a solidarity movement of understanding that honor is gender neutral. Some people want to carry it forward, some people don't want to carry it forward. It comes with consent. And honor has nothing to do with what I do in my personal life out of my own choice. And the second is because I personally am a person who believes in a lot of reforms. I believe in the reforming theory of feminism that there have to be awareness and gender sensitization camps. Where one has to talk about all these episodes, there have to be numbers, how honor killings or uh, sexual offenses related to women uh, to women being uh, the honor holders of a community. Mm-hmm. All, there has to be awareness, there has to be talk about it and how it is reprimanded for the society, uh, society at the large. And the third and the most important is to get the correct data. I mean, I'm sure even you're aware that the data that comes in India is all shadow data. We do not have a proper analysis of data. There is no reputable mm-hmm. data. And that is why the general public thinks that passing off these these uh, these verbal dialogues also just out of fun that you know one a woman has to be a virgin before she gets married or a woman has to has to uh, um, you know has to wear the proper clothes if she doesn't want to get raped or she was inviting uh, somebody because her skirt was a little too short all these will change only when we have reported data as to how the, these passing off comments uh, in, in the macro understanding of things uh, adds up to sexual offenses. So the first is women should have the solidarity movement. The second is awareness camps and gender sensitization initiatives. Their story that how they were, you know, how they felt violated or they were, you know, a victim. So we see that, uh, you know, they are usually, there are certain stigmas, there's humiliation that a person has to face instead of solidarity probably also that's the reason a lot of women are not able to come out and even report the cases even if they report the this isn't very easy to achieve like even in Nirbha case it took years to just like get you know these people being hanged and being given death penalty so how do we th- how do you think like to also get like correct reporting of data how do you think we can encourage more women to start reporting cases and just like coming out because I think uh, it also builds up a part where society is then talking about it and actually saying, okay, we won't look at this. So how do you think we can encourage more women to report cases? And yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And 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 I think that's
Yeah, so that's, that is an uh, interesting point because, you know, only after the Katwa and now rape case was uh, reporting of data considered pertinent by the legislature. And after a decade, the National Family Health Survey conducted a survey on the trends of sexual violence cases and the reporting was uh, the numbers that came out were extremely disturbing. The numbers were that 99.16% of sexual violence cases are unreported in India. And a lot of it was due to a number of factors that run. And all these factors also need to be changed if we want more women to report cases when and how they were sexually violated. The first is obviously the socio-cultural fabric around rape or sexual violence. There has to be gender sensitization, there has to be awareness that the one who is a perpetrator is a criminal, the one who is a victim is not a criminal. She did not invite an unconsensual uh, uh, you know, sexual inactivity. So social culture, for changing of the social culture fabric, a lot of activism is required. And for a lot of activism, the civil societies have to come into the NGOs have to do the work. The National Commission of Women has to run these programs where sensitization about uh, rape, sensitization about sexual violence has to be talked about. All the taboo subjects have to be have to be touched. The second is that the police have to become a little more. There have to be rather awareness camps and gender sensitization classes, even for the police or the investigation officer. To give them the learning that what kind of probing questions are supposed they are supposed to ask, how are they supposed to conduct, what are their timings? Because you just can't become ruthless. It is a it is a crime, not as robbery. It is a mental and a physical trauma, an emotional trauma. <laughs> so they have to be sensitized because that is a prime reason as to why women do not want to go to the investigation or investigation officer. The third is that um, there is also a belief amongst the people, which is actually not wrong, that there is a low conviction rate amongst these cases. I mean, even in the past track courts that the government of India has recently employed for uh, sexual offences cases, which is I think about 1,023 or the fast track courts, the conviction rate is, is just 17%. And that, and that also takes into cognizance that the quality and the success differs from state to state. So when the conviction rate is so low, nobody wants to get into specifically the person who has physically, emotionally has and uh, sexually been violated wants to go to the trauma of, of a judicial proceeding. Um, I wouldn't say that they are not stringent laws because they cannot be radical laws. I mean, for even for rape, I mean, there has to be a proper procedure. But application of that law, awareness of that law is definitely very low. I mean, even if you, today you go to the villages, even if you go, why just villages, even if you go to urban places, mm-hmm. not many uh, women would know about the rights that are bestowed to them under the constitution of various other statutes in the country. So they first have to be aware about these laws. So I think these are the three, four areas where if we if we really uh, start our work around these areas, there could there could be increase in reporting the cases. Okay, do you think like victims or or just like more women should be you know uh, inducted in the committee when we are framing the laws against sexual assault? Do you think the laws that currently prevail are comprehensive enough uh, to deal with the sexual assault cases? Or do you think there's certain laws which can be reformed, in your opinion? So, ideally, Simran, uh, any time a new law or a policy is floated, the stakeholders are supposed to contribute to the first draft of a policy or uh, a bill or even a a statute. And uh, that ideally happens. But... uh, as, as recent as the transgender bill that was floated by the past by the mm-hmm. parliament, not even one transgender mm-hmm. person's consent or his view of the bill was taken into consideration. So why is it important? It is definitely important that the specifically the victims of a particular victims which of a particular or stakeholders of a particular legisla- legislation should contribute at least their views and their understanding of a particular statute is because these statutes are not just plain intent intent paper. There is a social lives that revolve around these statutes, and they cannot just be a piece of paper that is that is sent to the to the judiciary or the legislature to ratify. 
So I personally believe that there has to be, and rather there is a provision under our various laws and statutes that stakeholders consent and view is to be taken into cognizance. But as we all know, not everything ideally happens in the country. Okay. Um. So also in your niche for the sexual assault awareness month related interviews, like how in the pink list India, a lot of people said that they actively support like um. LGBTQ IA plus community, but when transgender bill was passed, they, they didn't even like actively even spoke once against it or like did anything sort of. It was also disappointing. Like people who have already supported transgenders earlier publicly, but didn't take a stance when it came to transgender bill. So even if people who are representative or even have showed us that they are willing to like give certain voice and representation, sort of backed out, we can say, and didn't do enough. Okay, so yes, we see that. So we a lot of people when we talk about sexual assault, they only think that is something that happens in heterosexual couples, or it is something that only females are subjected to. But it also happens uh, across diverse genders and age group. How do you think patriarchy contributes to sexual assault, not just to like um, subjecting uh, to women, but also to other genders or in society in general? So, Simran, uh, let's go back in history to understand this. Patriarchy first, as a norm, as a subject, as a word, emerged in pre-World War times. At that time, gender was not binary. Uh, sorry, gender was binary. Mm-hmm. At that time, everybody was considered a heterosexual, but at that time, more so. Uh, the man was supposed to be the high end of a table, and that is why the patriarchy definition emerged as a definition of. Of the woman getting violated or a woman getting harassed, but over the years, over the over the centuries that have passed, feminism has also evolved as a definition because feminism is not about one community uh, charting out the entire world according to their own whims and fancies. It is it always takes into consideration consideration the social cultural factor. So today, uh, the feminist theory is more about gender neutral. It is more about giving equal. Uh, You know, uh, a place to sit on the table to the LGBTQI community. It is about black feminist movement. It is about violated and oppressed. So today, patriarchy has a more wide definition about power dynamics. Now, that power dynamic dynamics could be towards any gender, but ideally, and if we take facts into cognizance, that power dynamics even today, not just in India, but worldwide, is occupied by the cis heterosexual man in the country, in the world. And that is why it is not about man as such. It is about going against one particular gender occupying the power. And if the facts are to be believed, it is occupied by the cis heterosexual man. Yes. Um. Also, we see like in ninety percent of the cases, it has been found that the person who assaulted was actually a known. And that's also one reason when it happens within families. A lot of families try to conceal the stories because uh, they probably know the person, and that's also one of the struggles when hashtag Me Too cam happened. Uh, a lot of people thought just because we had known in them in some capacity, this is something they can't do, or all those sort of narratives. It's it's pretty sad that in ninety percent of the cases, uh, like the assaulter is known. Uh, how do you think in so in so in such situation we can? Support the victim, and and also just to like ease the situation, and yeah, how to interact with the victim, and things we can do as society to support. So the first thing is that uh, the numbers are also absolutely in favor of uh, whatever you have said and quoted. That uh, even when it comes to sexual violence or sexual offenses, majority cases are committed by the husband. And it and it, and in India, marital rape is not a crime. So, as a community, uh, and I'm talking about activists, I'm talking about civil societies and NGOs, and even anybody who is a little more inclusive of gender, it is very important in our own small domains first to first to start talking about gender sensitization and gender awareness. Start bringing gender as a non-taboo subject. And specifically for the person who has been a victim of this of any kind of assault, I particularly believe that instead of 
even if you have a lot of compassion and kindness for the person, a right help is required, and therefore I vouch by therapy. It is extremely important to mm-hmm. see the right kind of therapy so that it all the mental and emotional trauma that an individual goes through is rendered and is lifted in the part because physically the, that person, that individual will heal. But certain times, as we have seen in many of the cases, that even if for the time being that trauma has has concealed. And sometime in the future, or even while that person wants to get intimate with some other person, that that trauma emerges, and therefore I believe that therapy is extremely important. Uh, one has to direct the person to the right kind of therapist, make therapy a non-taboo subject, and uh, uh, and just deal with the entire situation with a lot of kindness and compassion. Okay, um, so. Also, when we see that there was this debate going on when it comes to death penalty uh, as a punishment for heinous crimes like rape, do you think death penalty deters uh, like the deters this act of more people commit deters people from committing crimes like rape, or do you think what effect does death penalty has on society? Or it deters, or do you think, on the other hand, it deters people from reporting cases when it happens in family? So, what do you think death penalty should be there for such heinous crimes or not, like in your opinion? The sexual violences or otherwise, I am a believer that death penalty has can only be reserved for rarest of rare cases. Uh, I completely believe in the theory of reformation. I am not a believer of deterrent theory of punishment. Obviously, in certain cases, the mm-hmm. death it was required because there were no reforms possible. They had the 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 assaulters had no scope of uh, remorse for what they committed, and it was necessary for for to set a standard for uh, rape that were committed were as heinous as committed with their death. But um, overall, I believe in the theory of reformation. And uh, therefore, I believe in a lot of gender sensitization awareness camps right from the childhood to sexual harassment at workplace to various other unconscious gender bias that we, that we fight on a daily basis and in the society at large. So, um, yeah, death penalty only in the rarest of rare cases and not all rape, all, all rape cases. Okay, so also there's this thing that we say that if there is um, a topic or a conversation related to sex education and also more people talk about consent, then sexual assaults specifically in relationships might go lower. Do you think sex education helps in any way? Oh, absolutely. And rather, this is a very uh, personal interest research topic for me because um, having observed a very close nexus between uh, societal gender disparity and Mm -hmm. uh, gender rearing of the child, I took up a certificate course in comprehensive sexuality education. So CSC is a, which is comprehensive sexuality education, Mm -hmm. is a little reform uh, education program curriculum. Uh, then sex education. So uh, CSE takes into consideration the unicorn colors of the gender. It takes into consideration pleasure, consent, etc. And uh, I have been running certain CSE curriculums in schools. I have also been running awareness campaigns and the results are really good. Uh, The classes where there is a CSE curriculum are the classes which are more gender healthy. There is more uh, comfort between the genders and there is more healthy interaction between the genders. And also, uh, CSE is not just limited to children who are hitting their puberty. It starts from a child, which is a first grade child, where the child starts distinguishing between work roles. That this is a role which is limited to women, like cooking or cleaning of the house. And this is a role limited to a man, say uh, plumbing and uh, gardening, etc. So it starts from there. And once mm-hmm. we start talking about it is that is when we start contributing to a workforce, to a youthful force in the country which will not have gender bias. So it is extremely important that CSE becomes a, a permanent uh, part of our curriculum. Rather, uh, I'm also co-leading a project by Indian Council of Medical Research. It's a national study on gender belief in children, six to eight years. And uh, we're supposed to submit our conclusion by August and but though the conclusion numbers are not in my hand, but the result of that project is also that uh, 
if we introduce CSE and this project will be submitted to Indian Education Board for consideration, mm -hmm. in the new education policy 2020-2021, if we introduce CSE as a mandatory part of the curriculum in schools, we will be um, found, we will be able to combat a lot of uh, gender bias and give a youthful course which is not handicapped by gender beliefs. Wow, this is genuinely amazing. When government approves it forward it, 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 and it gets like passed on. It's genuinely amazing. Um, this also reminds of a similar question again, which has been uh, debated a lot. Uh, so there, so you know, trying to find the link between porn and rape. So it is said like by watching porn, people are able to channelize their sexual energies and not really be frustrated or like take it out on any individual. But again, when people watch porn, they are, you know, usually it is said that it is also videos where again, it shows this part where one person like usually this alpha dominant male is sort of asserting uh, oneself on the other person. So it's also it's also, you know, showing some sort of sexual violence in a way. Also, the industry already is not working in any sort of consensual way or is actually exploiting people. So what do you think is the link between, um, a con you know, people in the country having access to watch porn and rape cases? So thing is that first one has to understand that women and feminism and their battle towards sex positivity is the foundation of the porn industry becoming legitimate in a lot of democracies and countries worldwide. Where one school of thought said that women who entered into porn industry are are entering only in the porn industry because that is the last resort they can do with the bodies. But then a second school of thought that came in is that it is their choice. If they want to consider it as a work, then who are you and I to decide whether it is ethical or whether it is it is legitimate for their bodies or not. So that is one. Therefore, I am not against porn industry. What I am against is uh, exploitation in the porn industry. And who enjoys what aspects of sex? Some people might enjoy a wild sex. Some people might enjoy BDM and BDSM. But who, I, who, is, who are you and I to decide that whether it it, it it afflicts to a particular carnal desire or not. But yes, what we can battle against is, is if either of the party, and in, in, in the present topic mm -hmm. is if the woman was being exploited, it was, it, it was out of her consent, if her consent was taken with undue pressure or uh, by using something as a bait, then that's a problem. But uh, more than porn adding to sexual violences uh, or to gravitate towards you know, unnatural sexual desires by, by men, it is lack of awareness. It is lack of awareness to understand that a man or a woman would have sexual desires when they get puberty. But what is the vent around it? How do we talk to them about it? They will enter into intercourse. But are we giving them the right kind of information possible on how to make that entire episode of intercourse pleasurable? So I gravitate to that school of thought that you can't shut down porn because that is at the end of the day a right of a person whether that person wants to get into that profession or not. But on the other hand, awareness is required that whatever you see on the porn is not reality. A lot of it is obviously wrong. Yes. Okay. Um, I also have this one more question. It's related to very gendered feminism. Like, I really like your opinions. I, they're, like, pretty well-formed. Like, you've worked in this field for a long time. And it's also, like, eye-opener and knowing more refor refined opinions. Um, so, what do you think is the difference between a person who calls oneself an equalist and a feminist? Do you think there's distinction uh, between the two thoughts and how yeah. do you explain it to someone? Well, uh, I think an equalist is a feminist. I mean, as, as I said, that an equalist is a person who believes there's equality of gender and that is what a feminist also believes in, that there has to be equality or an equal representation of genders. But before we talk about equality, before we talk about that every, and I'm assuming that this question has also been taken to cognizance that if feminists are equalists, then why do they ask for certain privileges, which can start from why do we want another compartment for hours in, in the metro mm -hmm. or representation, 33% representation in, in the legislature. That is because we are not at the state in the world, which is 50-50 
So you know, it is so interesting that you've asked me this question because I'm right now writing a research paper which which talks about a, a physics theory which is called a class mass theory. Now, what that theory states is that even if there is an atom or a molecule which is extremely potent, high on energy, and you place that one energy ka atom amidst another another uh, another set of atoms which might not have as much energy as that one atom, mm-hmm. that one atom is going to lose its energy because it is underrepresented, and that is why today women ask for their representation or the so-called when men or other genders want to quote it as privileges is because we are not represented in the leadership roles. I mean, it is as basic as the government of India could not recognize that a sanitary napkin is an essential commodity in during a pandemic or a global crisis. Or they could not recognize that uh, a condom is an essential commodity that people will have intercourse at the front of unplanned pregnancy would be borne by a woman. So that there is where I think the entire debate about feminism becoming radical comes into play. When they think that women are women cannot battle with men on meritocracy, there is no ground of meritocracy because we are underrepresented wherever you go. Even I'm sure in the corporate sector you have observed the entire votes are made up of men, and therefore if one woman wants to take up a policy for a gender, she will be voted out because there is no representation. She doesn't have ally support. True. Um, okay, and uh, yeah, and this question: When we talk about feminism, we do agree on certain principles, but when we have seen it around being practiced, like every person have somewhat their own version of feminism that they practice or probably differs on. For example, uh, some feminists would say that I, if a, if some feminists would say that when we are talking about something and a woman achieves something great. we should celebrate that like putting in this words yes this woman achieved something but other people think we shouldn't put the word women and put a lot of emphasis on the word women itself if we are trying to normalize so we all practice different sorts of feminism in our own life despite agreeing on certain principle so who do you think uh, gets to be the torch bearer of this feminist movement or like yes just to like come to define certain things on what progresses the movement or what restricts the movement i hope if one school of thought supersedes the other school of thought see that is the beauty of feminism you define it in the way you i'm want. sorry can you be a little louder uh, i'm sorry can yeah. you be a little louder sure, your voice sure. is breaking am i am i audible now yes yes you are so yeah that's that's what i was saying that that's the beauty of feminism that One school of thought can never supersede the other school of thought. If one school believes that uh, we want to be stay-at-home moms and take care of the child, very good for you. If the other school of thought believes that no, we want to be boardroom leaders, then very good for you. So that is how feminism has evolved. It has given that power of choice to women. But yes, that one school that will always supersede is a school that takes into cognizance the socio-cultural fabric of the world that is going. See, feminism or feminists will not make a planet of their own and start living there in a utopian land. They will have to take into cognizance and be practical about it. That what part of their uh, feminist agenda is also suited for the world at large. Now, a very small example of it is that what we are seeing in America right now, where A feminist group has been going out with with uh, placards saying that it is my body and my right, and therefore I decide if I want to wear a mask or not. Now that is not feminist at all. That is being imbecile. That is being I'm sorry to use that word, but that is being very stupid. You have to take into cognizance that what is the requirement of the world. I mean, you can go out and be a nudist if you want to, but not in the present circumstances. I think that school of thought will always supersede the one that is in cognizance with the socio-cultural fabric. Okay, and so recently, uh, when Rishi Kapoor passed away, there were a lot of news surfing that how um, he has also been a soldier or caused discomfort to people uh, by indulging in domestic violence at some point of time in life. So again, when Stanley passed away, there was similar. Uh, environment where people thought at the same time it's important also to remember the discomfort it caused to certain people and to also give the victims space that they deserve so 
how do you take this issue like when somebody passes away of remembering them and is it okay to remember them in also a light which we believe which is also no, which is not always positive because usually when somebody yes. passes away we tend to immortalize people more so how do you think we can also give people enough space and what what what's your opinion on this whole sort of controversy so the thing is that if somebody comes with an opinion and believes that rishi kapoor was is supposed to be brought down to the dungeon and all the work that he has done for indian cinema the craft that he brought in or whatever has to be boiled down to zero very good. okay that is your understanding of uh, whatever wrong he has done and by the way those all these theories of he being a domestic uh, violent while he, he committing domestic violence or he or writing that tweet to a 16 year old girl etc were never proved in the court of law and i'm a lawyer i would definitely believe that until and unless it has been proven in the court of law that person is not guilty i would give that benefit to that person okay even if you forget that and somebody wants to believe that they are not supposed to celebrate or mourn the death of somebody who has contributed to indian cinema very good it works for you please do not force it down somebody else's gut or call out people who are mourning his death that is that that is a very crude way of actually establishing patriarchy again power dynamics we are going back to the roots where we think as women we we as people are pitting against each other and there is no solidarity so anybody and everybody can have their own opinion it's a democracy at the end of the day and if you do not approve somebody mourning absolutely fine to not be uh, distasteful of somebody else mourning his death and about immortalizing or mortalizing somebody i think uh, one we have to understand and i think it it's over the years i have understood this that we are all work in progress and instead of calling out gender bias we are a country which was based out of patriarchy and to believe that one fine day everything is going to change and we can call out people is not going to be possible we have to believe that we can reform people that there can be awareness there can be talks where people will change and many a times people are not even aware of the unconscious gender bias i remember even back in school where i thought mm-hmm. that i was still a very uh, women rights induced uh, school girl i would call out a person who might be a little feminine as sissy i mean today i'm conscious about it and i would mind my language but this was me so if somebody had to call out me then even that person would call out that i i am a i'm a i'm i'm a pseudo feminist so even if she kapoor did commit those crimes or was was um, very uh, distasteful to the 16 year old girl who called out nepotism and as a matter of fact i believe that even if it was a 16 year old boy he would use the same words they were very general neutral abuses i am not discounting if those abuses were true or not but those yes, were general neutral abuses but uh, to each his own but let's not put it against somebody else's gut or call out the person who are actually mocking his death it is a loss to the country and let's not pollute that Yes, I agree. I think we can also be aware of the fact, like it's proved or that happened, and still mourn and know the person for who that person was. I think it's possible for these things to coexist and not necessarily just discard one narrative unnecessarily. And yeah, to each on their own. I agree. So we'll now have like a quick rapid fire round, which is really short, but I hope it's you yeah. enjoy this. So one thing that motivates you every day to show up to your work to show up for work yeah i think uh, it is a belief that uh, one day power will be gender neutral and responsibility it be in the corporate economy or working economy or household will be gender inclusive so that motivates you to go to work every day one so thing I'm- one feminist myth you want to break like one myth people just hold about feminist Oh, this I have heard so many times, but yeah, that all feminists are angry, bra-burning women who despise men and land. Oh. Not, we are not. Yeah, and bras are expensive. We are not going to burn bras. <laughs> we don't like burning bras most of the time. That's another case, but yeah, we are not burning bras for sure. One thing you think that differentiates between a feminist and a feminazi? I think what we discussed above, you know, that. Uh, 
work in the finance is a very strong word but uh, between uh, between a uh, little a little conducive feminist would be the feminist who do not take the socio-cultural fabric into consideration and are just about my rights my rights and are not understanding enough to understand to take into consideration what the world needs at large um your favorite book so far oh my favorite book so far would be uh, actually it's there are two books i mean i'm very fond of jane austen and virginia woolf so i love the room of its own by virginia woolf but uh, one thing one book which is very close to my heart is uh, delhi is not far by ruskin bond i read that book it's great and i think it just brings down a lot of memories of me growing up reading a lot of books so it takes me back to a time where uh, you know where, where things were a little unfiltered and i was not acquainted with the real reality of world but otherwise i'm a huge follower of jane austen of virginia woolf these are these are very strong books which always keep me going okay and also charles mm-hmm. dickens books i think a uh, great great fan i don't know how many people approve of it, of that book today but uh, uh, great expectations uh, is is very close to my heart yeah okay also reasons if you would like to tell like why great expectations is also close to your heart i think just the plot the pip estella even miss havisham in that in that book of being this angry woman with a cat by her side and plotting the entire plot against pip and uh, estella and uh, the the small uh, the very naive romantic scenes between pip and estella and estella being the alpha a protagonist in that in that book really enticed me because back in time i remember i read great expectations i think it was it was one of my first books in the 11th grade and that is when i read the unabridged version is uh, not many books specifically in english classic literature had women protagonists so that really endured so yeah about it having women lead was was very and women lead that were both vulnerable and enlightened that had carnal desires as well as uh, growth that was a good read um if you could change one law which one it would be yeah definitely making marital rape criminal because it is high time the country understand that sex is not a byproduct of marriage and in a marriage without a marriage or otherwise consent in a sexual intercourse is necessary it is it is not established just because two people are in a marriage okay um what do you think has been a defining moment moment of your life like if you had to choose one defining moment I think it was a gender diversity project. I mean, at that time when I was working, that quick move to from corporate litigation to uh, gender advocacy. I don't think a lot of people were even in my close circle, and I'm not holding it against them. Uh, were not very happy with the decision, but somehow I was so gratified with the move, with the results, and this was a work that even if you would wake me up at three a.m. in the morning, I would be pleased to do. I think I think that gender diversity project was the turning point in my life, and then obviously making the big move in 2017, establishing Azad. So yeah, these have been the highlights of my life up to now. Need a career front, of course. Okay, name one woman activist whose work inspires you. There are many, but I think uh, yeah, I mean uh, Brinda Grover actually, and she's a lawyer at the in the. Supreme Court, and she has been the uh, head behind the Bosch guidelines, prevention of sexual offences uh-huh. at uh, workplace. And I think more we talk about independence and financial independence of women, it is necessary that we give them a safe space. And if we do not give them a safe space, they will never be able to talk about uh, women going out there and achieving their. Uh, financial independence speech so i guess with a global and the second definitely i think for any person who has seen the world after 2018 in the in the gender advocacy domain it would be medika guruswami of despite uh, being an ally to the lgbt community i cannot thank her enough for making the lgbt for fighting for the lgbt community and to give, it, give them a legal sanction in the country and to come out as a as a person of the community and the and setting up a pedestal for the others to follow suit 
Okay, one movie you would recommend everyone to watch. Okay, so last night I watched Queen, and I think it is it is my happy. But otherwise, I think works of being a ball flower. It's a very very endearing movie. It, it is a movie that gives you a lot of hope, a lot of dreams, and no matter how different you are, no matter how troubled you are, no matter what mental health you are going through, you will always find a way out. So that's. A very positive movie, and specifically for the times that we are going in, when the economy is in shambles, where we don't know mm-hmm. what the future world order has, it is a movie that tells you that we will stay through this. Okay, so I'm done with my rapid fire questions, uh, and I think I would like to ask you one more question. What do you think is the best term to describe someone who has been gone through sexual harassment? Victim or survivor? Again, it's a very, uh, I think, a topic around which again a very long debate has been going on. When I just like googled up and read about it, so yeah, what's your opinion so, on the thing? Yes, you are absolutely right that there is a lot of debate about it. That where the elitist club said that no, they are survivors, they are warriors, but the people who had gone through that trauma said no, we are victims. We we own this word and we will take ownership of that word. Similarly, how the words like tranny or the words like slut were owned by the feminist community, and they said that we will own these words and we will color them in the way that we have. Similarly, how it happened with the Dalit Dalit movement. So, I think it is okay to call them whichever way till we are. And you and I, I mean, for the people who have not been a part of that incident or that trauma, I don't think it is uh, our privilege to comment. And it is for the people who have gone through the trauma, through the incident. It is their call to understand that what word they want to take ownership of. So, survivor or victim, at the end of the day, works whichever way they they resonate with. Ah, uh, I yes, I I do think that makes sense because we and we should also like. You know, try to dealing the word. If somebody is saying victim, we shouldn't automatically assume pity, or somebody who is below, but somebody who need to weak. मतलब तो yeah, that's true. Like I do believe in this reclaim ideology because we need to attach again. You know that dignity and respect of the word, and not something that was like victim. Like a person need to be treated with respect. That's again a part of removing the victim shaming. I think the culture we had created. Absolutely. You know that it's just tactics. something i didn't definitely have possessed especially in this refined form and a lot of research and insight thank you so much pallavi for being a part of this we really appreciate your time and efforts and we had a lot of fun shooting this episode with you